Welcome to Chat with the Designers. This is the August 14th session with host George N2APB and co-host Joe N2CX. We certainly welcome everybody here this evening and thank you for joining us. Chat with the Designers is your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the fruited plains. We're really happy to be here again this week, as we are every week, nearly, and we are in episode number 35, and we're going to be here on this TeamSpeak channel for the next hour or so, talking about a topic that is uh, very dear to us, of course, and all of us attending here, is uh, circuit design. Circuit designs of different natures and the components that make up these different circuits with all the different functions that we kind of live with and, and work with every day here in the shacks. Uh, the title of this episode here is Analyze This, kind of a takeoff on Robert De Niro's uh, series of movies, or maybe it's Billy Crystals, but it, it's an appropriate title because what we're going to be doing is taking two circuits and we're going to be dissecting them, we're analyzing them and studying them and looking at the components and figuring out why the components are what they are. And what special is about those components vis-a-vis -vis the different discussions that we've been having over the previous couple of episodes of resistors, capacitors, all the different kinds of toroids, semiconductors, and the reference books and such that we've been really using as discussion points leading up to this point. So this is kind of a culmination of skills and techniques and perhaps newfound knowledge about components in general and how they, of course, combine into circuits and to make the, the typical kinds of functions. One circuit that we're going to be discussing, the first one actually, is a signal source. It's a really nice signal source. And uh, we're going to get into it uh, from a block diagram perspective and then start to drill down into, again, the components that are used and kind of keeping in mind that, you know, Oftentimes, we want to build something that a magazine presents. A project that's in a magazine is an interesting one, and we want to build it, but we don't have all the parts. So something that we often do is immediately, and I do a lot still, even with a junk box as deep as mine, I run off to DigiKey and see what I have to get and order the parts and kind of wait for a while. The parts come in, and invariably, they don't have the right kind of parts. So I have to go to a different source as well, and it takes about five to ten days before I get all the different parts, and son of a gun, the, the excitement of that circuit has kind of worn off, and time has taken its toll, and uh, it, the parts get collected and put off to the side. Well, suppose you had a parts bench that was pretty good, doesn't have to be top, uh, top shelf, but you have parts that you could use maybe instead of a uh, 2N4416, uh, which happens to be like a, uh, an FET. So supposing you have a different kind of FET, could you use it? What are its characteristics of the 4417 that maybe you could use uh, an MPF-102 or a 2N-7000? Different, uh, different kinds of FETs, but maybe one would work just as well. And guess what? You wouldn't have to go off to DigiKey and get your parts. You wouldn't have to wait. You could actually dive right in, heat the old soldering iron up, and get into it right away. Well, that's kind of been our modus operandi here for the last two to three episodes, and we're hoping to give you some ideas that allow you to make that kind of uh, judgment. And, you know, you're not going to break anything. You might not, it might not work when you're done putting it together, but you're probably not going to break anything, and you might even learn something. So we'll give you some guidance on, on that very uh, topic. Joe, why don't you introduce the first schematic? 
the project work came from, kind of like the value of, of it, uh, if one were wanting to build it oneself, and kind of like the lineage of the venerable 8640. Indeed. Yeah, the uh, the project is um, the 8640 Junior, which is a um, circuit designed by uh, Wes Hayward, W7ZOI, who I'm sure many of us are familiar with from uh, his excellent work in uh, QSD and QEX, uh, speaking of the various ham forums, written several uh, several excellent books, Solid State Design for the Radio Amateur, um, co-written with um, Doug DeMore, uh, <laughs> Experimental methods for RF design, and uh, solid, and, and there's a third third book. But at any rate, excellent designer. What he did was to uh, look at a signal generator produced by Hewlett Packard, which has been a very standard uh, signal generator for a number of years. When I when I first started in communications, I hate to say it, back in the um, formally in the, uh, the early 70s. Guess what the SIG gen we used was? It was an 8640. And uh, that, that generator is very, very good. The, the HP one uses a tuned cavity uh, resonator uh, in its oscillator. Very good phase noise, very good uh, stability. And it um, what it does is to divide, it, it runs at VHF. To get the lower, uh, lower frequency bands, it uses digital dividers to divide down the, uh, the high frequency and um, the VHF down to HF, a series of dividers in two-to-one frequency bands, which then develops in, uh, makes a square wave, and then the square wave is, is filtered with uh, some excellent filters. And uh, there's a precision uh, attenuator to take it down to uh, tenths of microvolts. Well, the 8640 Junior is a um, kind of a, a junior, it is junior, in that it doesn't have the fancy cavity oscillator. None of us be able to duplicate that. But it is a reasonably good oscillator that uh, tunes the HF bands uh, from uh, 80 meters up to uh, 10 meters. Um, it uses um, some reasonably available uh, FETs. It uses the same basic architecture. We'll get into the architecture um, in a little more depth. But um, it was such a good design, such a handy design, something easy enough for almost anybody to duplicate, but useful to be um, used on the bench as a uh, uh, kind of a, a standard um, test oscillator, uh, variable oscillator in HF, that uh, a group run by um, K7QO, Chuck Adams, on the QRP tech list. Chuck Adams suggested to folks that it would be extremely instructive that uh, if a bunch of them got together and tried to duplicate this, they could all share their experiences in building the building this test oscillator, finding out what parts to get, uh, what kind of substitutions they could do, and um, what the end results would be. It was very, very successful. Uh, I would recommend highly, um, if you're interested in this, you look up the um, uh, Yahoo uh, QRP-Tech group. They have good archives and they have uh, notes and photographs of uh, the experiences of folks who uh, built this. So it's, a, uh, it's a very good basic design that uh, Wes Hayward adapted to amateur use um, with things that we can get and provides a uh, pretty, good, um, pretty good amount of performance in something that um, any Joe Ham can uh, build himself. 
Uh, George, would you like to um, go into the uh, the block diagram of this thing and, and uh, how it's made up? I sure would, Joe. And uh, just for the record, of course, I've got I've got an 8640B here on my bench. Thanks to you, some of your sleuth uh, detective work and find, helping me find it on the internet. And uh, you have one. And our buddy Yuha Ninikowski, OH2NLT, has uh, two or three of them. And he finds extremely that finds it extremely useful to have multiple signal sources such as this and such as these good ones, and you can do a lot of different uh, good good kinds of measurements. Um, anything from as simple as signal tracing through a uh, through a, rece a receiver circuit or some kind of a uh, um, a signal path and follow the signal through to IMD type of intermodulation distortion types of measurements. This circuit here, while it doesn't have the super duper performance, as Joe said, of the 8640B, it uh, um, it, it serves um, it can serve a great role. So if you're looking for a project to build up at some point, I think uh, this would be a good one, and you'll have to do it. I think by uh, Manhattan style or Skywire form or some other kind of Manhattan. We'll provide. Uh, we'll try to find the article. It's no longer on the internet, but we'll, we'll see if we can get it kind of posted, and you can follow uh, follow it if you're interested in, in a good project. So for this uh, for tonight's session, what we're going to do is, as as we said, is to kind of break down the circuit and then go into some of the components. This circuit, as represented on our whiteboard, for the sake of our uh, podcast listeners and who might be on the road or the trains or an airplane or whatever, we'll try to describe the situational topology of the schematic and the component in it so as you can get some value until you get a chance to see it uh, on the companion uh, whiteboard. Okay, so from the schematic on the, uh, on the page, it looks like we have one, two, three, four, five, six blocks. And... Um, Let's uh, let's take them almost in sequential order. I mean, they're they're labeled. And by the way, the schematic we're using is from Paul Harden. Um, Paul Harden redrew the schematic, the original schematic from W7ZOI. And in Paul's fabulous fashion that he always does, he's an excellent artist and communicates technology so well. And the redraw of the schematic just makes it even more clear. And some of the labels on there actually tell what it's like. So let's start at the beginning. In the upper left-hand corner, a block that's called FET, F, um, the, the, the FET VFO. So Joe, let me just see if I can kind of uh, start analyzing this from the top down. I, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind, or it comes to my view, is a regulator, an uh, 78L06 regulator. Now also looking elsewhere in the schematic, I see there's a 78L05. There's 12 volts in here. So why is there a separate voltage regulator for the VFO? Ah, I'm glad you asked. There is a separate regulator uh, for the VFO section, for the digital section, several reasons. Um, the main reason is that you want to have isolation of the various circuit functions. And having a linear regulator provide the, uh, the power to the circuits individually allows you to... Um, to keep any uh, junk that might get on the power lines from feeding across the circuit functions so that you don't uh, you don't get interference by that. Um, kind of uh, 
in addition, uh, as you look through the circuit, there are a lot of, in the power leads, there are a lot of series resistors and bypass capacitors to ground that also tend to uh, also uh, remove any of the noise that might be on those power lines that uh, would talk, cause crosstalk between the circuits. Um, one point about the regulators, the digital circuitry needs 5 volts, so that has a 78L05. The oscillator uses a 78L06 uh, to give a little more voltage. The FET's like a little higher voltage, uh, but you don't want to go too high and run it off a higher voltage because that could cause uh, some unwanted heating in the oscillator circuit that uh, might tend to ruin the uh, temperature stability. Kind of a uh, kind of an auxiliary point, but uh, one that's important. Really interesting, and um, I would suspect probably that in addition to kind of keeping the voltage bus clean going to the VFO, you might also want to take care of the grounding. Remember our circuit, um, our um, our uh, chat with the designers session about uh, grounding. And this might be a good example of such a, an application of having, what, a, like a segmented ground? Actually, I don't think it's so much a segmented ground, but uh, when this thing is built uh, Manhattan style, uh, you have a good uh, ground plane to, um, to be able to bypass everything to, uh, to a solid uh, ground reference. But within each circuit, you want to try to keep all the grounds for a given circuit physically close so that none of the uh, currents that flow from the devices flow into other circuits. Uh, all the returns and everything will be right localized to, uh, to each individual circuit. So you minimize ground talk, uh, uh, ground loops and uh, crosstalk that way too. Ah, gotcha. And um, yeah, if, if one were to be wiring up this thing like with wire <laughs> and not using a ground plane, um, which, which can be done, but with care and caution, uh, you would not want to feed the the grounds from to other portions of the circuit from the ground that the, that is used for the VFO. You might want to consider taking all of your grounds separately to the main power supply connectors. So the ground for the return path, if you will, for your power amplifier down in the lower right hand corner doesn't go through or past the uh, the VFO. So that's kind of a, a good general practice and keeping all your grounds close together. Joe, there's a uh, there's a 10 ohm resistor on the input of that uh, 78L06. What's the purpose there? Um, well, <laughs> several purposes. There's also one on the output. Uh, they provide additional isolation, uh, a little bit of uh, filtering in the um, little impedance in the power line there. Uh, so that the bypass capacitor forms a voltage divider to ground to, uh, to lessen the amount of uh, uh, voltage getting, uh, any noise that might be there is bypassed to ground, and uh, the resistor just helps that action. Okay, that's good. And maybe a different way of saying it, or if you didn't quite say it, that 10 ohm resistor on the input um, serves to help dissipate some of the volt uh, to, to handle some of the voltage and provide a voltage drop leading into the six volt regulator such that the differential between the input and the output of the regulator is not 12 volts down to six or the difference would be six volts and the current going through it would that be x amount of power 
But with the 10 ohm resistor in there, you're dropping some voltage and the, the voltage differential across that regulator is not quite as great and hence that it'll, it'll stay cooler. So that's a, a bit of a, of a technique there too. By the way, on the topic of voltage regulators, we really didn't cover that component specifically before. This is a good uh, um, set of components to have a good range of. Yeah, so if you're going to DigiKey to buy a part like a 78L06, what I would do is buy a couple of 78L06. I, I would probably buy 10 because you're a little bit of a price break at 10. So 10 78L06s, maybe 10 78L05s, maybe 10 78L08s, 78, uh, 78, uh, 78L12. And then you can also get negative voltage regulators, voltage regulators that regulate to a negative voltage when you have a negative voltage in the input. And those would be 79L05, 79L06, and so on and so forth. So in those are cases when you need those special voltages for amplifiers and other kinds of things, you'll have your, your junk box. And little by little, you keep building it up. Okay, now, the next thing that comes to mind here in the VFO um, pops out or like a, a question on a, like a, uh, well, a lot. Um, what makes this, where's the frequency tuning components in here? What is it that um, determines the frequency of the oscillator? And uh, then we can talk after we identify those, we can maybe talk about what, what care to make about those component selections and maybe how to mount them. But Joe, which, which are the component uh, that, determine the frequency in this VFO? Uh, the frequency determining components uh, are mainly uh, L1, which is a, a T56 toroid, which is wound with a total of 12 turns, and it's tapped because this is a Harley oscillator. So there are four turns to ground and eight turns above ground. And then that is tuned with a, a series of capacitors. There's one small fixed capacitor, and peak farad capacitor, and then there's um, additional capacitors that are in a series parallel combination. I won't go through all of them. But uh, the idea there is um, there's a, a series capacitor to the um, main tuning capacitor, which uh, does most of the tuning, covers uh, most of the frequency range. And then in parallel with that is a smaller capacitor, um, uh, which... Uh, allows you to do fine tuning. So there's a main tuning capacitor to cover uh, wide tuning uh, changes, and then a smaller um, band spread capacitor, if you remember from some of the older uh, ham rigs, to get a fine adjustment. And uh, those are the primary uh, frequency determining components in the, in the oscillator. Um, I was just going to say, so the bigger frequency, um, uh, the, the bigger capacitor, the one that's labeled 365 puff, and it looks like a standard broadcast tuning type of capacitor, air variable. Those are air variables, by the way, uh, at least the right side one. That's the main tuning, larger frequency changes per turn. Um, tuning capacitor, the band, uh, the band spread capacitor is the one on the left, which is a smaller. Is the smaller one also an air, uh, an air capacitor, air variable capacitor? Yes, more than likely. The idea there is that uh, they tend to be um, very high Q. They have uh, excellent uh, temperature stability and um, are w give you a high um, uh, min to max capacitance range. 
so that you get the uh, the widest tuning range. You know, there's um, um, you can comment on this too. The 365 puff capacitors. If you guys ever um, see those on sale or at Hamfests especially, get them. They are useful in so many different kinds of circuits, and they're becoming slowly extinct. And you'll find uh, forever use of them. I, I, I scarfed up ten to twenty of them at any given time at a ham fest for some of the projects just like this. Is that, is that about? Uh, is that a good thing to do, Joe? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I've been known to uh, pull uh, junk uh, all American five radios out of the trash and take the tuning caps out. One of the real um, disappointments when I looked back was uh, I knew a guy who was the president of uh, um, Radio Condenser Corporation in Camden, New Jersey, who back in the 50s and 60s made the uh, 365 picofarad, the two-gang 365 puff caps. And I visited his shack one day. He had a crate of them. And he said, would you like this crate? And I said, no, I'd never need that money. Yeah. So um, two two last things maybe about this, and then we'll kind of move along because we could spend all day here on the VFO. Um, the, uh, the toroid, we just spoke about toroids last week. So here's a great example of a, uh, a T50-6, which of course is being used in a, a frequency or a, a, a tuned... Um, uh, a tuned configuration, a tuned circuit configuration. So you'd use the the T, uh, the T series, and um, with it has a tap. And remember how we talked about making the tap before while you're winding it. When you're winding, you start at the ground perhaps, and you wind four turns, and then at that, in the fourth turn, that's uh, before you snug that up and go into the fifth turn, you would. Uh, We'll make up a little bit of a longer loop, stick it out and twist it a bit, and then continue on to, with eight more turns. And that would give you a toroid with three leads. Joe, how would you go about mounting something like that? Because I kind of think that there's some, um, since this is a frequency-sensitive circuit, tune circuit, you'd want to make sure that your components are mounted pretty carefully and solidly. Uh, you want to comment on that? Yeah, normally I don't... Um, don't take a lot of pains to tie down uh, toroids to, uh, to printed circuit boards. But in this case, it might not be a bad idea to use a, a dab of uh, hot glue or a non-contaminating RTV just to uh, hold the, the toroid stable. Because if you just uh, mount it by its leads and let it hang in the air, if you uh, jiggle the, the uh, chassis that this thing's in on or you wrap it, um, you'll get a jump in frequency. So that needs to have at least some mechanical stability um, to keep uh, keep you from bearing the uh, inductance in unwanted ways. Yeah, how about uh, when you have capacitors, and looks like there's a number of capacitors there, and you probably want those tuning capacitors up on a front panel, and uh, um, the, lead, the leads, the wire leading to the, the capacitors, and actually there's a ground capacitor. I mean, you got to Kind of be careful of a lot of these things and uh, where the wires go. Keep them short and such, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, all of the the frequency determining components, all the components in the um, uh, in this oscillator should be located close to each other, uh, and for the most part, uh, mounted physically securely and uh, with short leads, 
so that you don't um, you don't end up uh, detuning by um, by wrap. So what's so special about the two N forty four sixteen? It's a JFET or a, uh, just as an FET. I'm not sure the exact kind, but um, a why an FET? And B, is there anything specific and magic about the 4416 that uh, makes it especially good or important for use here on, in, in, in such an oscillator? Certainly, yeah. The uh, 4416 is a, uh, um, a junction FET. It's an N-channel junction FET. Operates in depletion mode. Um, it's a very good amplifier. I've used the darn thing up to 2 meters. And I believe it'll oscillate up to UHF. So it's a it's a high transconductance. Uh, that means a high gain device um, with very low stray capacitances to it, and it has tightly controlled characteristics. Uh, uh, the gain, the uh, the bias uh, bias voltage, the biasing potentials that it requires are pretty tightly controlled. Um, so it's it's excellent for this because. Um, it is, um, it's a super component, which is not to say you could not use an MPF-102, a uh, 2N5486, 2N3819, or other um, low-capacitance junction FETs. Uh, the 4416 is kind of the Cadillac of, uh, of the works. One other point about it, um, there are two FETs here. There's one used as an oscillator and one used as a buffer. Both of them have uh, 100 ohm resistors in their drains to VCC. Those are there because these are VHF FETs. And um, the being uh, operating with a lot of gain up into VHF, if you don't have something to DQ the, uh, the collector or the uh, drain circuit there, they could become VHF oscillators at the same time they're oscillating at another frequency. And believe me, it happens. Well, that's a great point, and you took the words right out of my mouth for the next question on that uh, source follower. Um, and it, um, the, the 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 basic oscillator is a VHF oscillator. In other words, we're starting off with a high frequency, a VHF frequency, and then the operation of this thing, of this overall circuit, is that it divides down in order to create the lower frequencies. You'll notice that there's three bands of operation that you can select with the band switch, which is kind of directly below the source follower. You can see the bands one, two, and three. Um, this is a good technique for generating good quality signals on three bands. Instead of starting with a low frequency and then kind of multiplying up in some fashion, so you start off with a really good oscillator at a, at a VHF, and then when you divide down to get lower frequencies, the performance specifications, for example, you know, the phase noise and the stability only gets better when you divide down starting from a high frequency and kind of opposite from starting low and, 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 and building up. Joe, one, one last question before we leave the VFO. We talked um, during our, our magic week with capacitors all the different kinds of capacitors, and I still yet, I just remember this, I still have yet to produce that summary chart, um, which I will do for different capacitors and their best uses and so on. Which capacitors here in the VFO are important to worry about drift, and hence using an NPO type of capacitor? 
Okay, and a minor correction. The oscillator runs at uh, 13.6 to 30 megahertz. It's not really VHF. It would be VHF in the real 8640, but this one just uh, covers the high end of the HF band. Um, capacitors, all of the capacitors in the tuning circuit that are not the air variables need to be uh, NP0 caps to have uh, a low, low temperature drift. Um, there's one additional capacitor we didn't talk about which is a coupling capacitor from the tune circuit to the gate of the FET. Um, that's 4.3 picofarads. It's a low capacitance to uh, give you um, isolation of the FET uh, from the tune circuit to minimize uh, pulling of the oscillator by, uh, by the uh, FET, uh, which is minimal anyway, but it's uh, kind of belt and suspenders. That also, since it's, in a, uh, since it's associated with the tune circuit, should be an NP0 capacitor for a low drift. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, let's take a break at this sec at this point right here and see if there are any questions that might have accumulated from our listeners uh, relative to the VFO and the voltage regulator, but mostly the VFO perhaps. Is there something that kind of piques a question in your mind that you'd like to ask at this point that we haven't touched on? And we're, we're moving pretty quickly, but... Nonetheless, this is interesting stuff. Any questions? Yeah, back in the days when all the the only thing you had available for building circuitry was discrete components, that it was obvious how you're going to do that. I'm just wondering, today, obviously, we have the choice not only of discrete components as we have here, but integrated components, uh, and you, you guys are certainly familiar with uh, single-circuit uh, oscillators that have the same kinds of high quality that this one has. Uh, and then you also have um, microcomputer-based uh, solutions to the same problems. You go about deciding which one is the best approach. Well, oftentimes cost is a is a decisive factor. If you're trying to make a a low-cost transceiver, you want to have uh, low-cost components and low-cost solutions. And just as an example, a DDS chip, a single whatever you call it, a single source type of uh, oscillator on a chip. And there are other kind, but just to use an example, a DDS chip is 20 bucks. So for uh, this circuit here, Joe, I would estimate uh, voltage regulator included is probably on the order of maybe uh, $5 at most. Yeah, the main cost would be uh, the tuning capacitor, but uh, if you can scrounge one, that's free. Yeah, so... Rick, I mean, cost is a factor oftentimes, but if you're looking for ultimate flexibility and control, I mean, even with a DDS, then you need a, a microcontroller, which is going to add another couple, three bucks in associated circuits and complexity and, and, and so on. But uh, it all depends on, you know, what, what kind of a design it is. And you might be able to use your microcontroller for other things. You might be, you might want greater signal, um, Diversity, not diversity. You want to be able to move the signal around better, faster, or more precisely. And that's where other types of solutions could come into play. I have a question. Yeah, let me just briefly mention the, uh, the diode. There was a question. Uh, uh, yeah, a couple of people asked what diode D1 does. Um, the combination of the, the uh, uh, series capacitor, the 4.3 picofarad capacitor from the tuned circuit, and the diode forms a little rectifier. Um, and there's a drain, uh, I'm sorry, there's a gate resistor also, a one meg gate resistor. 
What the diode does is it rectifies a little bit of the current from the tuned circuit and produces a negative bias for the transistor. Um, and the more, the stronger the oscillator oscillates, the more voltage will be there, uh, the more negative bias there'll be to turn the fat off. So the net effect it is that it kind of regulates the amplitude, much as the way a uh, grid circuit in the old vacuum tube oscillators used to. Um, kind of uh, self-regulating to maintain a constant amplitude. The amplitude will change as you tune, as you tune across its uh, tuning range. But if you have this in there, the, uh, the detector diode and the other components, it helps stabilize the, uh, the oscillator uh, voltage so that it stays stable as you tune. And Paul asks how you get a good uh, sine wave out of this thing. It is a good oscillator, the, uh, or a good sine wave. The, uh, the regulation, in fact, helps that by uh, maintaining stability so that uh, the transistor doesn't become nonlinear. And how much, does the, um, how much do you think this oscillator draws in current, Joe? I had a guess. Um, a combination of the oscillator and the one buffer there would be uh, something on the order of uh, perhaps uh, 10 mils at most. Okay, I was going to guess at 20, so it looks like we're in a, I'm in a ballpark at any rate. All right, so let's move along. Um, we, uh, we mentioned that Q2 is another FET right after, it's the source follower right after the oscillator, and um, uh, it serves to isolate and uh, to buffer, but in specifically what... What's a, a big characteristic that it offers, Joe? It's a high. It's a source follower. Got to get my plates and grids and bases and emitters straight. It's a source follower, which has the high input impedance of a FAT, um, and reasonably low output impedance, so that it picks uh, picks the voltage off the source of the uh, oscillator transistor and off the tap on the tuned circuit uh, to feed it onto the succeeding circuit um, without loading it down or without uh, causing any, any um, variation in the, uh, in the uh, perturbation of the oscillator. It is basically uh, only for isolation. Alrighty. Now, let's move on to the uh, buffer amp. So just to kind of recap for our listeners, we have, uh, we've, we've talked about an FET, uh, Hartley oscillator, <clears throat> which uh, produces a good sine wave, an adjustable um, frequency uh, signal source, and it's buffered by another FET source follower, and that feeds into a common base amplifier. It's shown as Q3, a 3904 uh, transistor. So, first of all, common base. This is not very common, actually, even though it's called a common base. It's not that common to me. What's the characteristic of a common base type of amplifier here, Joe? Uh, the characteristic is that it has a reasonably high gain, but uh, there's a lot of isolation between the uh, input and output. The, um, as you load the output of it, it doesn't affect the input very much uh, because it, uh, any of the stray capacitances from the collector circuit are shunted to ground by the, uh, by the base. So it, it gives you a little bit of voltage gain, but a lot of isolation to, um, to keep you from pulling, um, pulling the circuitry that comes before. This isn't also called a Norton amplifier, is it? No, a Norton amplifier is a, 
current amplifier that's uh that's different okay sorry about that so 3904 is a standard bipolar type of uh, um transistor very common very common it's it's the pnp version um and the npn common version is the uh two in um oh gosh uh I said that. You got I'm sorry. Backwards. This is the NPN. This is 3904 is the NPN, and the uh, PNP is the 3906. So those two are often used for different types of uh, circuits, depending on, of course, uh, the, the kind of switching or amplifying that uh, that you're going to do. Another common one is a 2N4401 and a 2N4403. So these are common, uh, uh, good gain, good beta types of uh, transistors that could be used in multiple applications. And again, since this thing doesn't go any higher than 31 megahertz, um, you, you're pretty safe in, in doing that. In the uh, output side of this common base amplifier, we see a transformer, a toroidal transformer, T1. It says it's 12 turns by filer on a T37-43 core. So you see that those numbers there by the transformer, that's the indication, the translation that what that all means. It's uh, 12 turns by filer BF on a T37-43. So once again, we see a tuned circuit application. So hence we're, we're using uh, the T series um, of uh, cores. It's a 37 in 10, um, a 0.37 inch diameter uh, core. No, George. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, this is it's, wide band. It should be FT37-43. FT. Because it's the, the, uh, wide band. Yeah, the 43 says it's uh, far right. So Paul made a mistake in the schematic. All right. Yeah, I kind of caught that as I was sort of saying in the stumble on it too. Good, uh, good catch. So the characteristic of the FT37 is it's a wide band uh, wide band type of uh, application for frequency response. And this is bifiler wound. So, uh, Joe, you want to comment there on the transformer? And you remember how we had the dot notation the other day when we were speaking about uh, winding the toroids? Yeah, it has. Uh, actually, I don't see the dots on here. The idea is that it's a um, it's one winding of two wires uh, on the core. One, uh, and the the top end of one is connected to the bottom end of the other, um, if you will, which makes a, an auto transformer, which has a two to one, um, two to one voltage transformation so that uh, you get a fairly high impedance on the collector. The collector doesn't want to drive a real low impedance, but you're able to drive an output, which uh, is much lower in impedance, uh, but you do get excellent coupling so you get a, um, a broadband transformer there. There's another wrinkle. The uh, Q3, the 2N3904, has a 43-ohm resistor in its collector. And I suspect that's another resistor in there to DQ any um, VHF parasitics so that uh, that amplifier doesn't oscillate. Interesting. So did you mention the impedance transformation? I wasn't listening carefully enough. It's, it's a 1 to 4... Um, impedance transformation in this particular configuration using a bifiler in this manner. And does that sort of imply that uh, the circuit side on the left of the transformer is, say, 200 ohms, 
and the right-hand side might be 500, uh, 50 ohms. So going from 200 down to 50 would be that impedance transformation. Yeah, actually, in this circuit, it's not loaded with 50 ohms, so it's not uh, it's not a, um, a 50 ohm to 200 ohm circuit. It's it's uh, probably about an order of magnitude higher, but indeed it is a four to one turn, uh, four to one impedance ratio, because impedance uh, uh, goes by the square of the turns ratio. So the square of a two to one um, winding is a four to one impedance transformation. All right, and we see here that this is the first point now. The output of this buffer amplifier is the first point where we now start. Uh, tapping off to get the band one. So this is where the raw original frequency of 13.6 up to 31 megahertz, that variable, um, that variable, that frequency range is tuned and that comes down to your band selector switch down below where it gets amplified and, and squirts out the output. But also now we take this, this um, the, the base frequency range of 13.6 to 31 megahertz and then now we want to take it and divide it down so the principle of operation for this whole um, if you were to draw a block diagram we've got the oscillator um, feeding a buffer but also now <clears throat> that um, the output of that oscillator goes into a divide by two circuit which is one half of the 74 HC 74 so a classic 74 74 flip-flop a flip-flop is uh, used to divide down uh, to take that sine wave and of course which is kind of squared up and divided by two coming out of the uh, the first flip-flop and that signal goes into the second flip-flop and ultimately gets divided by two again so it creates the two frequency ranges in addition to the original frequency you'll notice that the 13 let's just use a lower frequency as an example the lower frequency of uh, of the range. So we start off at 13.6, 13.6 megahertz, divide that by 2 gets us 6.8, and divide that by 2 gets us 3.4, and that's the lower edge of each of the three bands that this circuit offers. Now let's talk about taking that sine wave coming out of the uh, the buffer amp, Joe, and before it gets into that uh, the first flip-flop we can, we can uh, it needs to be squared up. Can you talk about Q4? Good Lord, I'm looking for Lawrence Welkin's accordion here with all these <laughs> Sounds like somebody's got the bubble machine on. Okay, there is a, um, a transistor, another 2N3904, which is uh, biased in its linear region as an amplifier, but it's driven by a, a reasonably high voltage, um, at least several tenths of a volt. And it has enough gain that uh, it converts that sine wave into a square wave. And the square wave goes from zero to five volts. That's what the flip-flops require to operate. There's a, uh, a small wrinkle in there also. In driving the, um, this uh, transistor amplifier, there's a series resistor and a small capacitor. And the reason for them is so that um, you don't load down the sine wave because a transistor input looks like a diode to ground. This provides isolation so that this, uh, this squaring circuit doesn't uh, uh, distort the sine wave in the, uh, that comes out of the buffer amplifiers. 
Anything special, uh, characteristic about that coupling capacitor C12 that you're that you're talking about? No, not really. It's uh, it's reasonably small, but uh, it's uh, enough with the impedances here that it uh, it doesn't um, it, it doesn't require any uh, special precautions, and the value is relatively non-critical. Uh, that can be uh, almost any type of capacitor, uh, any type of ceramic. Uh, although NP0 uh, is a common uh, dielectric for that small a cap. Alrighty. And, uh, of course, again, a 3904 is uh, the standard NPN. Uh, um, P, um, NPN <laughs> that is uh, uh, used to square up the signal, leading it over to the flip-flops. I noticed that it's an 74HC74. So, we know... Those of us who are in the digital world, we know that we have all different kinds of of uh, digital circuitry families. We have the 7474, we have the 74H74, we have the 74AC74, we have the 74C74, uh, or whatever the CMOS version of it. Joe, do you know what the HC version is and why we're using it here? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, the H is, uh, it's a... Uh denotes a higher frequency operation um, uh, as opposed to ordinary um, um, ordinary uh, CTL. But the C means that it, it uh, will interoperate with uh, CMOS voltage levels. So indeed it will operate up to 30 megahertz, but it's not a current hog because uh, it, it uses CMOS circuitry. All right. Um, and uh, we also in this stage we see the first use of the the second voltage regulator, the 78LO5. So that 5 volts is used to supply the spec 5 volts for the um, the TTL chip, the 7474 flip-flop. And um, anything else in there that it... Uh, I guess that's the only supply voltage elsewhere uh, that, that isn't... that isn't... it's not used elsewhere. Okay, so... Um, and... Um, Okay, so this can, this brings us down to signal paths. All three signal paths brings us down to the low-pass filters, the LPFs. Now, the, something I find extremely interesting is that we've got square... Two out of the three signals are, are presented as square waves. Um, and, of course, those square waves have to be turned into sine waves in order to be useful to us, most useful in this particular application. So we put them through low-pass filters, very specific low-pass filters, and um, it's going to be, it, the part that's puzzling to me, or the uh, curious to me, is that, you know, uh, we've got a square wave which is just full of, uh, oh gosh, uh, odd harmonics, Joe? Yes, very important that they're odd harmonics. Full of odd harmonics. Fundamental and first harmonic, second, third harmonic, fifth harmonic, seventh, and so on. So you want to knock all of those down really, really uh, a lot in order to have as pure a signal as you can for the use of, uh, you know, injecting test signals into your circuit. So you want to filter it really well. Joe, you want to comment on the Shebyshev, um filters and some of the specifics about that stage that's used to um, turn the square wave back into a sine wave. Okay, yeah. Um, the fundamental frequency, the 16 to 31 megahertz, will be passed by the band switch directly to the output uh, circuit because it's already a sine wave. 
But as George pointed out, um, the other two bands are divided down by the, uh, the flip-flops um, and produce good symmetrical uh, square waves. And as he pointed out, the, uh, one of the characteristics of a good symmetrical square wave is that uh, most of the harmonics are concentrated uh, in the odd harmonics. Now there's three, five, seven, nine, etc. Um, we're tuning in two to one frequency ranges, so we want to filter out uh, anything from the third harmonic up. So by tuning in two to one frequency ranges, even when we're at the low end of the frequency range, uh, we want a filter that will lop off the uh, the third harmonic. So for example, the 6.8 megahertz uh, tuning range will want to lop off the third harmonic, which is uh, uh, just below 21. It would be uh, 19.4 uh, megahertz. So we need a filter that is going to pass the, uh, the band of interest, 16.8 to 15 megahertz for the band we're talking about, but then roll off all of the harmonics. So the design here has chosen a uh, filter with a roll-off of 17 megahertz, which is above the desired 15 megahertz we're going to pass. And one of the um, characteristics of the Chebyshev is that it has a very steep roll-off. Uh, it goes from uh, no attenuation to uh, 40 dB in only a couple megahertz. So it will indeed roll off all of the harmonics and allow the desired signal to pass. Another characteristic that is important is that um, these two Chebyshev filters, any Chebyshev has some in-band ripple. We want to minimize the in-band ripple, meaning the, uh, the variation in the, uh, the signal passing through. We want to keep that to a minimum. So the, uh, the design here uses, uh, this band uses a 0.05 dB uh, ripple, which is um, a fraction of a percent, and the uh, lower frequency one is a 0.07 dB uh, ripple. So the designs uh, give us low in-band ripple, but they roll off all the harmonics. Uh, so what this means is you need a, uh, a very good um, low-pass filter. Beyond the design, the, uh, the component used to uh, fabricate these filters need to be good. So indeed, again, they're, um, uh, they're T36, T30-6 toroids, uh, which are ferrite, uh, I'm sorry, they're powdered iron cores, which you give you very high Q, low loss. And uh, there are tuning capacitors associated. Um, there are parallel tuning capacitors because this is a Pi filter. The tuning caps are all NP0s, again, to give you low loss, high Q, so that uh, you maintain the good, um, the good characteristics of that filter. You don't degrade the uh, design characteristics. Um, another point to mention, both, the, in, both of the filters that are fed from the divider chains have um, a, a series coupling cap to take any DC out of the uh, signal, but they also have a resistive divider which sets the uh, operating uh, voltage we want, and it also gives a good uh, approximate 50 ohm termination to one end of the filter, again, to preserve its, uh, its good filtering characteristics. 
So with uh, so with high Q filters, you have a high Q filter here, and it uh, it's a typical Japanese type of uh, uh, type of five seven five relationship. Is that is that the way it goes, Joe? Come again, five seven five. I don't uh, don't understand. Yeah, that's the uh, what do they call the pentameter type of poetry haiku in uh, Japanese uh, in Japanese uh, um, literature and such. Ah, as in there once was a man from Nantucket. Well, I don't know if that's haiku, but uh, and you probably need to detune that one a little bit. Yes, you're right. Sorry, I didn't get the pun. I was uh, trying to answer a text question in the text box. Yeah. Okay. So sorry about that. A little bit of diversion. Um, the uh, would the filters would these uh, Chebyshev filters be um, calculable? The components for them uh, in the manner that we did in our in our LPF design series uh, several months back. Yeah. Yeah. These are um, some good examples of the types of filters that. Uh, need to have very good characteristics to uh, to preserve um, good uh, low uh, attenuation ripple within the passband and uh, very good, uh, that is, in-band ripple and very good out-of-band uh, attenuation. Um, these are some prime examples of the sort of things we were talking about back then. It's kind of an input or kind of an interesting thing that uh, you mentioned, of course, the very fast roll-off. And the roll-off is placed very close to the um, the high end, uh, uh, the frequency roll-off point that you want. My my point is is that if you miscalculate or miswind uh, your toroids or filter selection, you know, component selection in the filter, there's a chance that that roll-off could be below the point you really want it to be. So. It's a good practice, as we mentioned back in our LPF design series, to measure the capacitor, measure the, uh, first of all, measure the toroid that you wind with your good old handy-dandy, almost all electronics, digital um, LC2 meter, and um, uh, make sure that you have 756 nanohenries for L2, as an example. Um as it as it should be, and if it's not quite there, or if it's way off, you can find out why it's way off. Maybe you have the wrong core, maybe you put an extra turn uh, or one turn less than should be. Um, but if you're close and you really are a purist, and you might want to be in this case here because of the tight nature and the fast roll off of the filter, as Joe said, you might want to spread or compress the windings a little bit uh, in order to tune that uh, inductor to be more on on the money. Similarly, you want to be sure your capacitors are are close to what they should be. And uh, overall, if I were building this circuit here, what I would be doing after I get the LPFs made would be to squirt some signals. Well, it's kind of made with signals going in anyways, but make sure that the um, the output is being filtered as I think it would be. So I could run some test signals on the input, make sure that the the output is uh, goes down, starts breaking downward. At the right point, at the designed uh, intended uh, point, just to be sure. Let me kind of use the techniques that we did use in the low pass filter design series that we had here. Moving along, because we're getting close on time here, let's let's touch on that output amplifier stage, which is the last one here in this schematic. Um, this, uh, as it says in the in the note there, this provides 20 dB of gain. 
Joe, can you do you have any kind of feel for the signal level going in versus the signal go level coming out? In other words, how do you calculate dB gain? Uh, I assume it's voltage gain, dB, uh, 20 dB of voltage gain. No, it's actually 20 dB of power gain. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, it's a voltage gain of 10 times. 20 dB, the, the actual formula is um, uh, for dB. Um, dB is really power, uh, but uh, the formula for determining the, the power gain would be 20 times the ratio of the input and the output. Um, if it were power gain, it would be 10 times the, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting this screwed up, 10 times the uh, logarithm of the um, input, uh, of the ratio of the input to the output. At any rate, it's a 10 times voltage amplifier. The output is going to be about plus 7 dBm, which works out to about half a volt RMS, um, minus a small amount of attenuation from the attenuator shown here. It's 3 dB attenuator. So uh, 3 dB attenuator means that um, it will be 0 0.707 times, uh, I'm sorry, 1.414 times higher. So it's roughly a volt at the input of the attenuator. Uh, and as we mentioned before, there's a bifolar trans transformer, the input, in the output circuit. So um, that has a two-to-one voltage ratio. So a volt uh, RMS um, on the output means that on the collector of the transistor, there is uh, uh, twice that, or there's two volts RMS. Uh, which for a gain amplifier then means at the input, it's a tenth that. So it's about 200 millivolts RMS or um, 200, uh, 283 volts uh, peak at the input and um, at the collector, it would be um, two volts RMS. Um, woo, a lot of words, a lot of words. An interesting thing about the amplifier, um, it is a um, 2N3904, and it's a reasonably standard Class A type amplifier. But in both the collector circuit and in the emitter circuit, there are resistors that are um, have capacitors associated with them. These are peaking circuits to give you a little more gain at the high frequency end of the uh, of the range to give you more broadband performance. Um, so you don't have any uh, roll off uh, in the high gain amplifier at higher frequencies. It tends to have the same gain across the, the, whole, um, the whole frequency range. Now an interesting way to look at that, and I've always found that to be an interesting uh, um, approach to a design. And some of, some of the people here might not see it for what it is, but the capacitor that's across, let's, let's consider the, um, the capacitor and resistor that are in series together across the emitter resistor on this buffer amplifier. So it's C24 and R27 that are in series. Now, at, the higher, at, at lower frequencies, the capacitor 
is going to... Oh man, no, I'm getting tired too. At lower frequencies, the capacitor is going to be more of a... Uh, um, it's, it's going to essentially be blocking. It's, it's, and your only gain element is going to be R26, the emitter resistor. Joe, do I have that relationship right there? Yes. Um, okay, it's so a minor the, effect, but yes. Okay, so when you go higher in frequency, when typically you, want, you will have a, a roll-off of gain, because that's just the way it, it goes, you would want to boost the gain going in higher frequencies, so that capacitor C24 essentially starts becoming uh, smaller impedance and smaller impedance, and thus brings more into, uh, it turns that combination in the emitter path into a lower, res a lower, um, lower resistance, and ultimately raises your gain. Is that correct? That is correct. The um, yes, the higher the resistance in the emitter, the the lower the gain, and the lower resistance, the higher the gain. So you get a boost at higher frequencies. Yeah, that's sort of what I was trying to say. So that, that's kind of a technique. And is that the same technique that's used on, you see that C25, the 0.1 microfarad that's across the uh, the resistor going from collector to base? So you are essentially, as you go higher in frequency, you're shorting out, you're providing more base current. Um, is that is that right? To drive it harder? No, actually, that's different. The um, reactance of the capacitor, 0.1 microfarad cap is low enough that... Uh, it's uh, it's going to be a short circuit across the 3K resistor um, uh, at no matter what frequency. Um, the the function there for that circuit is to provide a, um, a low feedback, I'm sorry, strong feedback to the amplifier uh, that is constant across the, the frequency range so that um, the negative feedback stabilizes the gain across the, uh, across the 3 to 30 megahertz range. Man, I love talking with you. I learn something new every single day, Joe. That's 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 cool. Um, maybe the last component to talk about before we start wrapping it up here is that transformer T2. Once again, well, once again, it's a typo. It should be an FT37-43, but once again, that's the same, uh, is it? Yeah, it's exactly the same transformer as above. However, in this case, since we know that the output is... Well, I guess we're assuming the output is a 50 ohm output, which is pretty typical for a signal source like the circuit is. Uh, that means that the impedance of the buffer amplifier output itself is 200 ohms, because again, we've got a four to one transformer, uh, four to one impedance ratio for the, this type of transformer winding, which is 12 turns by filer on an FT3743 core, right? You got it, and it really it it holds that uh, that impedance transformation and those impedance values when the output is terminated in 50 ohms. Uh, it's presumed for uh, normal operation that that's how the thing is used. All right, so um, maybe let's open it up for just Q and A about the whole circuit here, things that we lost over. I saw there were a couple of questions that we've answered on the. Uh, in the text boxes of the, of the client, of the TeamSpeak client, um, one about uh, using NP0 caps <clears throat> um, being replaced with silver mica caps, 
silver mica is indeed fine if you have the if you have them on hand or you can pay the money to get them. And uh, we talked a little bit about on, in the text area about the feedback up at um, if we go back up to the TTL driver transistor Q4. There's a resistor going from the collector to the base that normally provides uh, bias, but somebody noted um, that you know doesn't that also kind of provide some kind of want uh, wanted or un unwanted feedback? And the answer was yes to a degree, but mostly we're we're slamming the output up and down to square up that sinusoid into a nice square wave to drive the TTL flip flops, and we. Uh, don't care too much about any other feedback that it offers. So, are there other questions about the circuits in general here? And uh, I mean, this 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 is a great example, working example, because it illustrates so many uh, component uses that we've been talking about. I would love to see the. Uh, I would love to, and given the time, <laughs> and time is is the critical factor these days, at least for me. Um, I would love to just get a bag of components and sit down on a on a uh, with a copper copper clad uh, board and start building this thing up. I'll tell you, Jim Corchy, K eight I Q Y, is a fabulous fabulous uh, Manhattan style home brewer. As is Chuck Adams, K seven Q O, and a number of other people, and they could really do a nice job on this. I would imagine. Um, one can never have enough signal sources in your shack. Sort of like power supplies and sort of like, uh, well, I don't know, I tend to have a lot of receivers too. But nonetheless, signal sources are useful um, in so many different applications of what we're doing as experimenters. So having another one that you can build like this and actually get work in and kind of learn from is a, is a great uh, great thing to have, and then you mount it in a bit of a box to protect it, and you can use it like forevermore. In fact, Joe knows this. I've got an old um, I've got an old signal generator that was kind of flaky, and it's got a good front man front panel meter and a good uh, dial and a great uh, um, attenuator switch rotary switch on the output. That might be the, a really nice container for this, this signal source here. So I might think about doing something of that nature. And if you're intrepid, it really shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't uh, be too hard to do. All said and done, you, you've, we've been talking about all the different components here and things that you can get from your, uh, your workbench. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good addition. Um, and for further guidance, as I mentioned earlier, a number of people who are on the uh, the Yahoo QRP Tech uh, list have built it, and uh, they have pictures of their uh, their stuff on the um, associated files section of that uh, uh, QRP Tech list, so that you can see the job that uh, some of them did. And if you follow the uh, the thread in the in the messages, you can see some of the uh, issues that people came across, and uh, how they overcame them, and uh, ultimately what their successes were. Yeah. In fact, what I can do, too, is I can go grab some of those photos and um, credit them appropriately and maybe use them on our, our whiteboard as examples. And also that reminds me, um, what we've been doing here this evening is collecting all of our comments. And um, while I've been 
talking, Joe's been transcribing, and while Joe's been talking, I've been taking a lot of notes. So uh, within another day or so, I'll get a chance to update the whiteboard with all of the different comments that we've been talking about here this evening and uh, put them right alongside the schematic, maybe in a block-by-block block block fashion or in some fashion, uh, you know, just getting this information up there. So although it might seem like a lot of uh, shotgun of information from different on different uh, uh, components and zooping around the circuit and so on, we'll get it all located in one area, and you'll be able to look down, look at the schematic and look down all of our comments and the commentary and uh, maybe make some sense of it and, uh, you know, be useful for you in the future uh, as, a, as a future reference. What do you think, Joe? Is, is that going to be a possible thing? Sure. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Um, uh, our business and a lot of this is to provide uh, reference information to people. That sounds like a good idea. Okay. Um, so we'll do that. We're not going to go through the second circuit. Um, we ran out of time today. Maybe we'll do it next week. Uh, maybe we'll uh, pick it up another time. Um, what we're going to do, what, what, what I'd like to do, i got to find a way to do it. Now, maybe we can do it on the Yahoo group. There's a way to poll, to take a poll. Um, and uh, what I'd like to learn is from, um, from you listeners, both live listeners here as well as podcast listeners, uh, what you thought of this session, we're going to do this after each uh, episode and uh, maybe get some constructive feedback relative to what went well in your mind, what was, uh, what could be improved in your mind, or what we didn't do, or what you want to see next. Also, I'm going to construct a poll for the past 35 episodes and get your opinion of those that you um, listen to. Uh, get your opinion of which were the best ones, which one, you know, give it a rating, 1 to 10, say. And uh, that'll be useful for us as a guide as we continue to tune and make things, uh, uh, put together the programs here going forward. You'll also notice that um, we're, we're kind of spiffing up our our homepage um, with uh, the banner. And we've got the storefront now kind of displayed in the starting point. And we'll soon have uh, um, these uh, circuits and kits available First, for the chat with the designer people, as much as uh, uh, they may be desired, and then we'll we'll sell off the rest of the kits to the general uh, homebrewing public if they are interested. The first one that's going to be available, I'll be announcing this either tomorrow, probably tomorrow, is the uh, uh, the choke, the uh, choke ballon, the N2CX choke ballon. So we've got to get the parts together for that and create some quick kits and determine a um, and El Cheapo price for that and get that out for you. So you can, I'll have links that you can go back and look at that project for that from that week and then build up that particular project. Things that are also very much in, in heavy duty progress right now is the, uh, uh, and we're having a lot of fun with it too, is the GPS eval board, what we're calling the chat with the designer GPS board. And um, this is using that U-Blocks chip that uh, JJ, uh, KC2VGL, who's right here online with us tonight, has been able to get us a good deal of, of those parts, and we'll have a, a large handful of them to apply. And instead of just handing out a, a, uh, the, the chips or selling the chips, uh, uh, we're putting together a quick eval board because the, the chip is a surface mount device. It's 
it's going to be hard to mount if you don't have a specific circuit board. So we're whipping up a quick PCB for it. So we'll probably sell the PCB and, uh, and the chip. And um, you can buy whatever other parts that you want to populate it for whatever functions. We'll have a good guideline on what can be done with this. But that's that's pretty exciting. And I mentioned just before the show, if you were tuned in, that I have mine going constantly now here in my shack. And I've got a separate display for this the ca- uh, the satellite constellation map on the on my second CRT. And uh, it's quite amazing um, to see the stability and the and the signal reception map be so very solid uh, where it needs to be. And that's ultimately what provides a nice solid um, one pulse per second. And then it also provides a solid, uh, in my case here, I'm using a 10 kilohertz signal references coming out of the chip. And there's all sorts of things that you can do with that signal. Um, those signals in order to discipline, say, a 10 megahertz reference oscillator which then could be your reference oscillator for the shack. So we've all, we have all sorts of plans and we'll probably revisit that when the, uh, the board is available, probably in two to three weeks, that'll be available. We already have uh, a handle on the chips. So it's just a matter of turning the crank. So a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of news, a lot of uh, progress here and a lot of fun. I think Joe and I and, and JJ as well are having a lot of fun, uh, um, doing things here with chat with the designers and we really appreciate your your involvement here with us so joe do you want to maybe ask for some final questions or comments on what i talked about and then wrap her up for us tonight sure yeah one one comment uh, first the um <clears throat> as i mentioned at the beginning the um, 8640 junior circuit came from wes hayward w7zoy on his website well, I found out when I checked a couple of weeks ago that um, the uh, technical uh, notes section is no longer being supported by Wes Hayward. So it's not available at his website. If you want to go look at any of the old stuff, you have to use the Internet Archive to, uh, to do it. I've done that, and I've downloaded uh, most of his tech notes, so I'll have them for the future. Okay, we've probably worn you all out. Heads are probably spinning with uh, toroids and NP0 capacitors and bypasses and, and all that good kind of stuff. What we did tonight was to analyze a, uh, in some depth um, a very good and very uh, handy circuit that would be an adjunct to uh, many of our workbenches. And uh, we attempted to uh, analyze the circuitry, uh, give you the high points of it, and to um, give you guidelines for... Uh, what kinds of um, components would be appropriate to use in there and uh, give you some ideas for what could be uh, substituted in there. Um, This is as a follow-on actually to some of our discussions of uh, components. Folks wanted to know uh, more information about uh, component selection and application. So we came up with this topic to uh, try to answer that. All righty. Thanks, Joe. And again, um, please let us know either directly by email or if you have it yet, uh, signed in uh, and joined in on the uh, chat with the designers Yahoo group. We have email discussion. Uh, It's not overly burdensome and a lot of questions are asked and answered right straight away throughout the week. So we'd love to hear back from you guys as far as what you'd like to see next. We have some definite ideas, but... uh, 
we'd like to get your input relative to what you find would find uh, useful. In fact, the whole toroid series uh, last time and kind of leading in today was in response to some good feedback that we received from a number of people, and we hope that that really helped and served the role to uh, to give you some guidance and reference and tips and techniques on on those uh, horrendous uh, toroids components that we have in our so many of our projects. Alrighty. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we had some fun tonight and um, we'll get the podcast posted here pretty soon. We'll get the, more importantly, we'll get the extra information, the all the, uh, the dialogue transcribed um, alongside the schematic. And maybe that'll be kind of rounding out the experience for Analyze This, your chat with the designer session for August 14th. 73 all. We'll see you next week, Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.